Good morning. Hope you're doing well. Um, if you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Um, was, I, was my voice coming through the speakers while I was backstage? That's why you're all looking at me laughing. I was asking Jim if his headphones survived the dragon. So y'all didn't know, but he, 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 his headphones were hanging. He, they drug him across the stage when he was leaving. So now both services know that that happened. He thanked me for pointing that out, so he's going to thank me for pointing it out twice. Um, anyway, Ephesians chapter 4. Jordan just had a smile on his face like Fudd was talking. Everybody was listening to him, so I knew something was going on. All right, so uh, Ephesians chapter 4. As you know, we've been studying through the book of Ephesians and we have come to the midway point. So we've had six sermons through the book of Ephesians. Now we're going to do another six. So uh, uh, as I've been going through it, I've kind of explained the, the big general outline of the book of Ephesians. It'll, it should be up here on the stage. You can see uh, that the first three chapters are about your position. So in the first three chapters, Jesus is wanting to, you to know who you are. It's about identity. It's uh, who you are in Christ, your new life in Christ, who this community is in Christ, he, here's who you are. And so without giving any kind of imperatives or commands or things you need to obey uh, at all for the first three chapters, he's wanted you to know who you are. After he's done that for three chapters, now he wants to transition over to now that you know these things about who you are based on that, let's talk about how you live. Let's talk about what it looks like. Let's talk about what it practically looks into play, puts into place. So you'll see in these last three chapters, um, things on marriage, etc. But uh, today we're going to go into chapter four. You can see it's our practice, how we live, uh, what it looks like to have this identity in Christ. And there will be several more imperatives uh, or commands in, in four through six than what we've seen in verses, uh, our chapters one through three. So um, we are making the transition from chapter uh, one, two, and three over into four, five, and six. And really a, a big a big transition in the book. At Remedy, whenever we read the text, we read the text uh, corporately together before we preach uh, and go through it. So, or we, I guess I preach and you listen. But uh, before we do that, uh, we read the text together and we stand. So if you're able, I'd love for you to stand as we read the text. And then after I finish reading the text, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you'll say, thanks be to God. And by saying thanks be to God, you're obviously thanking the Lord that he would give us this text. But you're also in your heart and mind kind of signifying that, yes, Lord, I want to obey the, the things I hear, the things that, that the Holy Spirit teaches me, I want to say yes to. So starting at chapter four, verse one, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the, of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to, to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and in all, and through all, I'm sorry, over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain, we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. 
from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Jesus, we thank you so much for this text. We pray that you would come now, Holy Spirit, and and cause us all to hear um, the deeper truths behind just the words that our hearts and minds would be set uh, aflame for affections for Christ. And that uh, as we see and understand (laughs) what it means to be the church, that we would desire these things in our lives and that we would desire to see these things in our church. And God, that we would would pursue these things and obey these things. We love you, Jesus, and we pray this in in your name. Amen. So as we've been reading through, uh, last week, you know, we kind of skipped. We did... uh, we did Ephesians three fourteen through 21, and then last week we, we did the first part of Ephesians 3, uh, 1 through 13, and that was just because of the transition in here for the first week, uh, I wanted to do the prayer. Uh, but as we've, we've come into it, uh, we see here, in, as we saw in last week, in chapter 3, verse 10, that it said that it's, Paul wrote that it's through the church, the manifold or the multicolored wisdom of God might be made known. And so as we're going into this, what he's doing as, as he's talked about the church in 3.10, prayed for the church in 3.14 and following, now he's going to 4.1 through 16 and he's going to give us six aspects of what a healthy church looks like. So in, in verses 1 through 16 today, we're going to see uh, these these healthy things that should be happening in the church that he's already referenced in 310 and that he's already prayed for in 314 and following. Uh, Mark Dever talking about this uh, amazing picture that Paul's painting through the power of the Holy Spirit as he's writing about the manifold wisdom of God being displayed through the church. He said, only an all-wise God could devise such a way to reconcile his love and his justice while saving people who are estranged from him and from one another. Only an all-wise God could devise a way to turn the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that love and praise him. May the cosmic powers, or as it says here, uh, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places in 310, may they look on this particular church and all churches and marvel. And marvel. This is what is supposed to happen, that we are supposed to be this kind of church. And so today we're going to look and understand what it means to be a healthy church, uh, a healthy, healthy church body. One commentator, as he's looking at this particular set of verses 1 through 16, he says, No passage in the New Testament, Testament is more descriptive of the church in action than this particular. So it is quite informative for us and in what a New Testament church should look like. What are some of the healthy aspects of a church? So uh, before we go into those six points, I want to start in verse 1 uh, where Paul and, and, and verse 1 helps kind of sets the framework or the foundation of, of what those things would look like. So in verse 1 it says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. And he's already said this before and we've already noted. He doesn't say a prisoner of Rome but prisoner for the Lord. Which just gives you his mental mindset that prisoner, being a prisoner or suffering or any kind of thing isn't necessarily people doing it to me. But instead I'm suffering for the Lord. I have a view of the sovereignty of God in all things, even persecution. And I'll glorify God in and through that, which is totally fine with him. Just a, it's just an interesting way to make sure we understand Paul's high view of the sovereignty of God. He's not a prisoner of Rome, though he is. He's a prisoner for the Lord. He tells them to, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. This word walk in some translations uh, has been translated live. So he's talking about uh, the way we live. Uh, And so in the way that you live as a believer in Christ, it needs to be worthy of the manner in which you have been called. 
So as he talks about that to us individualistically, he's helping us understand whenever you think about the way that you live individualistically, that uh, while you pursue these things and while you have these things, there is a sense that while you do it, because you're a body, you're a part of the body of, of Christ, that collectively, since you're all doing it as individuals, you're also collectively all doing it. And so corporately, we're also all growing into this healthy body. And so while you're growing into these six things we're going to look at, absolutely pursue these things as individuals. But just know you're not only pursuing these things as individuals, as islands, but instead, as you pursue these things in your own life, you want to also pursue these things collectively with your church body. And so uh, that means even in your own family, you'll look at your spouse and say, hey, let's, let's, let's be more loving. Let's be more disciplined in our, in our studies, etc." And you think about it internally, but you also think about it in your community group or even church-wide. So pursue these things individually, of course. I mean, that's the first way that we all kind of think whenever we're looking at these things. I can, I can do that. But also, uh, pursue these things and always have the mindset that I'm doing these things corporately. Now, when we talk about, the early, uh, talk about what the church means, the early church tried to put some definitions on what that would look like. And, and in this particular church, one of the main things they're talking about is unity. And so they said this, when the early church, when they were talking about the church and church having unity, said, in essentials, unity and non-essentials, diversity. So the things that make up the faith, we're unified in those things. In the non-essentials, there's diversity. But in all things, there's clarity. Which means the closer we get to the heart of the Christian faith, the more we should expect unity in our church. The more we should expect unity in the understanding of our faith. Uh, and then as the early church was putting some definition on what the church looked like, they used kind of four famous words. You've probably heard this before. One, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. One, the, the one means that we're unified by the shared confession of set of beliefs uh, that we have that's been given to us by Christ. The other is that we're holy. So we're not just one, but we're also holy. We have Christ-like character in our church, in our churches. We're also Catholic. Doesn't mean that's the denomination, but instead it's talking about we're universal. So while we are a local body, we're also the church universal. So whenever you walk around and there's Christians anywhere, we're, we're Catholic in that we're the universal church everywhere. We're believers everywhere. So we're one holy Catholic and lastly, apostolic. Apostolic means that there's a straight line of succession straight back to the disciples, the apostles who started this. We're under apostolic authority as well. And so as we're, and then even as we went into the Reformation, uh, they put, they added to that. So even uh, Calvin and Luther would say, uh, the true church is where uh, the word is properly administered and the sacraments, or I say ordinances, is properly administered. And Luther just threw in there, and where church discipline is also rightly administered. He, it, church discipline for Luther was a big deal. Luther was crazy though, so you, you can read him. Um, we, in our house, this is offside, Jack, but in our house we have like cuss words and, and then we have no-no words, which aren't really cuss words, but you're not supposed to say them. Luther just skips the no-no words and goes straight to the cuss words a lot. So when you read Luther, you know, if cuss words bother you, you might want to not read Luther. Anyway, uh, back, to, uh, back to the point I'm trying to make. I got way off track. So we see in the early church and even uh, in, in the Reformation how they started uh, putting some understanding about what the church should look like and how they should think as unified, etc. And as Paul's writing, he's helping us understand what are some of the uh, what are some of the the key aspects of a healthy church. And so we know that um, that we're supposed to walk in a manner that's worthy of the way uh, that we have been called. This this walk, as I said, means to conduct one's life. So the way that you live your life should be. Uh, 
congruent with the way that you've been called. If you're not familiar, if you haven't been here uh, of our calling, it tells us there's several places, but we can look at Ephesians chapter one and verse one through three. So if you go to Genesis 1-1 where it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you could go above that and say, I was called before the foundations of the earth. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's our calling. Before the foundations of the earth were even created, pre-Genesis 1-1, you were called. This is what it says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ in every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as, here it is, he chose us, that's believers, in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So this is our calling. So we're talking salvific calling. We're not talking ministry calling. We're talking our salvation. We've been called into that. And so um, when we see in verse 1 that we're supposed to walk in a manner that's worthy of that calling, that God and his infinite mercy and love and sovereignty, those who are in Christ, he called us even before the foundations of the earth. Since that's the case, we should conduct our lives accordingly. Calvin says this statement is where all of the following statements that follow in verses 1 through 16 are founded. That we would want to and desire to and see it an absolute necessity to conduct our lives worthy of which the calling we've been called. And then if that's the case, then we can see uh, what it means to be a healthy church member, what it means to have a healthy church. So let's consider these things as individuals, but realize that as we consider these six things as individuals, that we're also always living in a corporate sense. So uh, let's look at it. Verse two, the first, we'll see the first one here in verse two, with all humility and with gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. So that's the first thing that we can see. A healthy church loves consistently. A healthy church loves consistently. So he tells us at the very end, with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. So he, he says that a healthy church should love each other consistently. And then he gives those four kind of ways of explanation of what this love looks like. There's certainly more that you could do. But in, in this particular verse, he, he gives us at least four ways to understand what healthy love inside of a church should look like. That we would be humble, we would be gentle, we would be patient, we would bear with one another. So if you look at your own self and you look at your own life about what it means to be more humble, what, what ways could you be more humble? Specifically, could you be more humble in your own life? In Philippians chapter two, when it talks about the greatest illustration of humility um, and, and talking about Jesus, it says, let each of you not look to his own interests, but also look to the interests of others. Have this mind among yours, which is yours in Christ Jesus, like Christ who didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and became nothing and became a servant of all men, willingly given his life on the cross. So when we look at the greatest illustration of humility, that's the way that we want to live our lives. And so um, the, the, one of the best ways that you can love other people in this church is to be like Christ. Consider others better than yourself, to be humble like Christ. As a matter of fact, in the first century, the word humility was actually a term of derision. Pride uh, was something that they valued. Uh, to be humble was like to be weak in a term of derision. And that's why Christianity in that first century is so countercultural. We're, we're Christians, people that were believers, were lifting up uh, to be humble and not being prideful. It was, it was so different for them, and that's why they were certainly uh, derided for that. Now, it's not necessarily different today, if you think about it, right? In the treat yourself culture, where we, uh, where we 
always look for ourselves as number one. We certainly don't want to be selfless to other people. It's the same thing. Our culture screams for us to uh, think about ourselves first before anything else. But instead, the way that we can be loving people in our congregation is to uh, be humble. Pride is being filled with self. Humility is being filled with Christ. Tim Keller says it this way, pretty succinctly. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. You're not supposed to think, well, I'm just trash or man, I'm so awesome. Tim Keller says, the essence of gospel is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. It's just that I just don't think of myself. I think of others. The thing that comes to my mind is other people. I want to think about how I can love them, care for them, be for them. So we are to be loving people that's, that are humble. Also, we're to be loving people that are gentle. What would it look like for you to be gentle? Remember, gentleness is a fruit that's singular, a fruit of the Spirit. So the fruit of the Spirit isn't a, a buffet where we pick our favorite three things and then we can leave the rest, right? We're supposed to have all the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We're supposed to have all those things. Did I leave one out? I think I didn't. Uh, we're supposed to have all those. It's the fruit of of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in us causes all those things to happen. And so we're supposed to be gentle people. We're supposed to be gentle people. So what would it look like then for you to be gentle with people in the church? We see one of the greatest illustrations of Jesus being gentle with us in Matthew 11, the the invitation to this great gospel rest that he gives us in Matthew 11, 28 and 29. And that's the kind of gentleness that we want to exercise with other people. And that illustrates and shows us how loving we can be when we're gentle. So we're humble, we're gentle, we're also patient. If you were to go to my house and you were to say, hey, uh, Chambers kids, all of y'all come here. And then they just all hoard in there like they're everywhere. And so you say, hey, is your dad, is your dad, is he pretty patient? Uh, they'd be like, not really, not really. He, he should be more patient. He, he could work on that for sure. Um, but uh, the key thing is I want to be more loving in my family. And one of the ways that I can be more loving is not just being humble or gentle, but being patient with them. Being patient with them. And the same things in our church body. We need to be more patient with each other. So what would it look like for you to be more patient? 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient. So we're supposed to be more patient with each other. I think uh, Paul gives us some insight in Timothy on how we can cultivate patience. If you lack patience, like me, uh, a way to cultivate patience is this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. When we think about what Christ has done for us and how patient he is with us, It should cause us to have some self-reflection and then be more patient. This is how Paul says it. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. That should be my mindset every time I'm talking around my kids. That should be your mindset every time you're interacting with the people at the church. I I am still the foremost of all sinners that I know of because I know the sins that I've done better than anybody else knows and I, I know my sins better than anybody else's sin. And then he says this, but I receive mercy As the foremost of sinners, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ, here it is, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And so when we reflect on this perfect patience that Jesus didn't show Paul, but he showed you and he showed me and every single Christian, when we think on that perfect patience, then We should overflow then, therefore, with patience to the people around us and our family and especially in our church body. And that's how we love each other consistently, by being humble, gentle, 
and patient. And also, it says, bearing with one another. What would it look like then for you to bear with one another? Uh, I mean, just off the top of my head, right? If I'm thinking, I jotted some stuff down. It means that when you're having conversations and a disagreement, that you don't have to make the last comment. It means that you don't have to prove your point. It means that you don't have to get that last thing off your chest just so they can finally understand exactly what you're saying. Um, But also, in uh, Colossians 3, verse 13, we're also told to bear with one another. Bear with one another. But he goes into a little bit more detail in Colossians 3.13 when he explains the bearing with one another. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So bearing with one another also doesn't just mean not making sure that you have to have your last comment. It means to forgive each other. So when you've been sinned against by people in your church, one of the greatest expressions of love that we can cultivate and have a healthy church body is by bearing with one another in that we forgive one another. We, we accept each other in love and we forgive each other. So that's the first thing that we can see. The first aspect of a healthy church is that we pursue love or that we love consistently. We love consistently. The second we can see is in verse three. So we have all these things and in verse three it says that we're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We're eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we know that the main point of the second aspect is, is unity, that a healthy church is unified. But let's, let's notice what he says. You can go ahead and put it up number two. A healthy church then maintains the spirit-wrought unity. So we are to maintain unity. We know that we, sh- we are supposed to maintain unity, but let's not miss what the Bible's making sure that we're saying. We don't create unity. The Holy Spirit creates unity. And once he creates unity, then, by his power, we are to maintain the unity that he has brought about. So, we are to maintain unity in the church. We, you don't create it. The Holy Spirit creates it. And he's the one that empowers us to maintain it. But, nevertheless, he has commanded us to maintain the unity. So, we see here, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So, since we don't create it, rather we keep the unity We know that we need the Spirit's help. So let's talk about what unity is. So we know that we're supposed to be unified. Unity is not some things and unity is some things. Unity is not meaning that you can't have opinions, even strong ones. You can have strong opinions. That that doesn't mean that you're not maintaining unity if you don't have an opinion. It also means, unity does not mean you can't disagree. Unity doesn't mean, uh, I should stop using all these knots, right? Because it's getting confusing. Sometimes when people use too many knots in a sentence, you're like, wait, is he saying yes or no? Is it positive? All right, I'll just say it this way. Uh, you can still be unified and have a disagreement. You can still be unified and have a strong opinion. You can still be unified and have different theology on open-handed issues. So like there's closed hand and open hand. Closed hand are like uh, Jesus died on the cross. Jesus is the only way for salvation. We believe in the full bodily resurrection of Jesus. We believe that there was a virgin birth. Open-handed issues, uh, your eschatology. Some, some crazy people think of all, all millennialism's right, right? That's crazy, right? It's post-trib, pre-mill. That's, it's, that's the only, I'm just kidding, right? But you can see like the difference. We have all millennialists. Uh, the elders are battling me. That's why I wanted to bring it up because they, they fall in the all millennial. I'm like, no, come on, we're Baptists. And they're like, no, you're wrong, Fudd. Anyway, and I might be, but I don't know. My whole point is this. Um, to maintain unity, does that mean we can't have different theology on open-handed issues? Of course we can. That, that's, not, that's not confronting unity. 
Um, Unity does mean then that when we have disagreements, there's a way to have a disagreement that still maintains the unity of the body, right? There's a way to stay together as a family. In in the same way that in in a family, if there's a disagreement between husband and wife, they're commanded not to divorce. In the same way, we want to stay together and in a sense not divorce ever, right? Because we're a family, So unity means that when we have these things, we voice those concerns, that they're biblical, they're not preference-oriented, and that we are really open to real discussion whenever we have these disagreements. So unity doesn't mean you can't have opinions. Of course it does. It means that we want to uh, be unified. I say this whenever we have the the new members class, but when we talk about unity, um, uh, in my experience in churches, there's sometimes where there's there's been... uh, there's been a disagreement that's happened that wasn't necessarily primarily about the gospel and that church can get sidetracked and, and squabble or talk about that for six, eight, nine, ten, twelve months. And then all of a sudden they've been taken off track on, on the main thing, which is Jesus, the gospel, and mission. And so while we have disagreements in the church, which we'll always have, we want to make sure that we stay unified in mission, unified in our trust in the gospel. Certainly we want to talk about these things that are real. But unity here uh, means that if it's preference-oriented, if it's preference-oriented, that we should instead strive for unity. We want to cause division in the body, but instead strive for unity. So we want to maintain the spirit-wrought unity. Uh, One commentator, as he's looking at both of these two things, uh, talking about love and how it looks like that we should be humble and gentle and patient and bearing with one another, and we should have unity, he says this, looking at verses 2 and 3. In order to pursue these qualities, we must be willing to renounce then the opposite of each of these things. We must be willing to renounce self-centeredness in order to walk in humility. We must be willing to renounce harshness in order to walk in gentleness. We must renounce tyranny of our own agendas in order to walk with real patience. We must renounce idealistic expectations in order to really walk in forbearing love. We must renounce indifference and passivity in order to eagerly maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. The church is unified and God is glorified when we live with such Christ-like conduct. So when I'm saying that we need to pursue these things, we also need to make sure that we're not just okay with those other things. Actually, we renounce those things. We don't want those things in our life. We don't want to be self-centered. We don't want to be harsh. We don't want to be uh, pursuing the tyranny of our own agenda. We don't want to have two idealistic idealistic expectations at the expense of not uh, forbearing with one another in love. So, um, and lastly, we of course don't want to uh, renounce, we want to renounce indifference and passivity so that we can continually maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. So, uh, as we pursue these things in our life, let's, let's make sure we're also shedding or dumping off or killing the, the, the opposite of those things in our life. So that's the, that's the first two, is we love consistently, and we maintain the spirit-wrought unity. But he's the one that, that creates it, and we just maintain it. The next thing is this. In verses 4 through 6, a healthy church communicates the gospel to ourselves and our neighbors in as many biblical ways as possible. In as many biblical ways as possible. A healthy church communicates the gospel to each other and their neighbor in as many biblical ways as possible. If you've been here, uh, let's read it first and let's, let's understand a couple things about it. There is one body, one spirit. You, you notice that the word one is used seven t- times here. Uh, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. This is likely a first century Christian creed. This is likely uh, something that they recited 
because they were wanting to continually put definition around, around their belief system, around the truths that they held to, around the things that adorn, the truths that adorn the good news of Jesus, the gospel. And so this is likely a first century creed. Now, at Remedy, uh, it, you've probably noticed that we want to concentrate on the good news of Christ, not just for the unbeliever, but for the believer. And we talk about the good news of the gospel as many times as we can. And what we want to do is take that same message and never change it and say it in as many new and fresh ways as possible. We want to try to say the good news, explain the good news in as many possible ways as we can because you and I, we can get so uh, fickle, we can get so used to that good news that we forget how good it is. And we just think, huh, yeah, I've heard that one. But if I say it, because I've said it this way, but as soon as I turn it and say it a different way to you, you're like, whoa, I haven't thought of it that way. Wow, I have a reinvigorated love and admiration and heart for Christ. And so we want to, at Remedy, try to say it as many ways as we can because we recognize our heart can be so wayward towards adoration and love for Christ. And so here, what they're doing is they've set themselves up a a, a creed where they're highlighting the good news of Jesus. They're highlighting the the truths of what it means to be a believer. And we as, as Christians want to communicate things like this to each other as much as we can, as fresh as we can, as new as we can, as much as we can to help us maintain a healthy churchy, churchy, I almost said churchy, church body, church body, because it's so important for us because of our own hearts. Now, uh, a couple things I want you to see here. First is that you can see the elements of the gospel in the Trinity and how each person does its work. You can see that there's the Holy Spirit, then Christ, then God the Father. Verse four, that it's the Spirit that calls us to Jesus, uh, that it's also, he talks about our Lord, that's Jesus. He's the one uh, who our faith is in and faith in him is needed for salvation. You also have God the Father in verse six. So the Trinity's uh, mentioned in this creed uh, as they're putting definition on what they believe. They certainly believe the Trinity is early, early, early. Uh, talk about that it's all for God's glory in verse six. Now, uh, also, as we see that the Trinity is mentioned in 4, 5, and 6, there's also, as I said, there's seven of these one statements. So I, I'm going to go through these decently quick uh, just so we can get the general gist of the meaning of this creed. Uh, and then hopefully we've also practiced what we've talked about, that we've, we've thought about uh, the truths of the good news of Jesus and what he's done for us in new and fresh ways and that your heart has now been more uh, invigorated for adoration and love for Christ. The first one is that we're one body. We're one body. This means that every single person, no matter where, what year they were born, what country they were born in, or, or anything, like how different they are, they have a common existence in being in Christ's church. They're part of the universal church, which we talked about, the Catholic church, the universal church. So even though we have these diverse backgrounds, we have these diverse giftings, we're still one body. We're unified in a common existence of, of uh, Christ's church. That's the first thing. The second thing is that we're one spirit, which means no matter where we're from or how we were called, we still all have the same common origin of being called by the same person, the Holy Spirit. Called us all into salvation. And so we see that it's the Holy Spirit who creates this unity. He empowers us. And then he even tells us, and I'm the one that called you all into this unity. Next thing that we can see is that we have one hope. In 2.12, we saw that we had no hope. In 2, 1 through 3, we saw what that no hope was, is that we follow the prince of the power of the air. And here we're seeing we only have one hope. Since before Christ, we had no hope, and now there's only one hope. The one hope we have is Jesus. He is our one and only hope. So as diverse as we are and as different we are, we still only have, we're unified around one hope. We also have one Lord. We believe and we confessed. I'm going to talk about how 
just how crazy this is for them to say it in the first century in a second. But we believe uh, and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, in the first century in a Roman province, to say Jesus Christ is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, meant you're going to lose your head. Like literally, you're going to lose your head. They're going to cut it right off, right? And stick it on a stake and keep it their streets lit at night. But here, they were so serious about uh, having a set of belief systems and saying that they would say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And it was a big thing for them to say, to write this into their creed and to state these things uh, so clearly. And so they were unified around this fact that they all confessed and believed that there is only one Lord and he is Jesus Christ. Uh, not Caesar or whatever idol we can make for ourselves. There's also one faith, one faith. And this likely doesn't mean just one belief as much as it means a collection of the body of truths around, specifically around the good news of Christ and what he's done. That there's one gospel, there's one belief system, there's one set of beliefs that we all believe. There's one faith. There's also one baptism. This is extraordinary, right? No matter how different we are, we all have the same um, experience of being baptized as believers, as in Romans 6 says, baptized into Christ, Every single one of us. You were baptized into Christ just like Paul. That's pretty extraordinary. So we're all unified. Also, one God and Father. And this is, this is maybe one of the most beautiful parts. As, as adopted children, completely different. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we all have the same dad. We all share the same father. He's adopted this, this, this amazing, vast, different group of people into this same family, and we all share the same father, and he's the God, and he's the father over all of us. And so highlighting, as we saw in, in the second one, the unity, we are also uh, to communicate all these beautiful truths about the gospel to each other as much as we can, and as clearly as we can, and as often as we can. So let's, let's speak these truths in our groups. I, I, I get so excited when I hear in our groups how each week y'all meet, Somebody else will uh, articulate the gospel to each other because you know that the, the, the different perspective that everyone brings, then everyone hears a different, not, it's not a different message, it's the same message, but we hear a new and fresh way about what Jesus has done for them and what Jesus has done for us and our hearts are made alive for Christ through that. So uh, let's keep doing that. Let's keep articulating the gospel to each other. A healthy church knows these, thi- knows these truths, knows the gospel and communicates them often to each other and to a lost and dying world. A healthy church communicates the gospel often. Next is verses seven through 10. Um, Now I put seven through 10. The the main message we can see is in verse seven and verse eight through 10. Paul kind of goes into this this pretty in-depth explanation of what he says in verse seven, but uh, we can go ahead and put it up. A healthy church has members that use their spiritual gifts. A healthy church has members that use their spiritual gifts for the church's edification. So uh, this is one of the key passages in the New Testament on gifts. There's others, First uh, Corinthians 12, Romans 12, and I don't, have time to, uh, I don't have time to discuss spiritual gifts completely. If you want a pretty in-depth discussion on spiritual gifts, there's one on our podcast from 1 Corinthians 12 from this past summer. That guy did a good job when he did it on 1 Corinthians 12 uh, this past summer. It was me, I'm just kidding. So, but you can go listen to it. 1 Corinthians 12, where we talk about spiritual gifts and, and, uh, as we look at it. But I don't have time to, to do an entire discussion or sermon on spiritual gifts. But what we can say are some things. We can see it in verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us. Notice that language. He uses the, the language of grace. So, it is a grace 
that God gave you a gift. And not only that God gave you this gift, specifically that you would be able to use it to edify other people. And so you're being able to be gifted to serve other people in your church body from, from God is considered by him a gift. It's not considered a job. It's not considered a thing you have to do now. It's not considered an extra task on your list, right? It's a grace. Just like salvation is grace in Ephesians 2.8, you're being able to be gifted to serve other people in your church body is also a grace. But this grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts, that he gave gifts to men, you can see it. So a healthy church member, uh, has, a healthy church has members that use their spiritual gifts for the church's edification. Church's edification. When you are given your spiritual gift, of course, you will receive your own edification. That's just natural. But as we've seen in 1 Corinthians 12, when we went through it, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, each is given the manifestation of the spirit, that just means spiritual gift, for the common good. So you've been given a gift so that you would use it in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 12. So with yourselves, you're eager to, 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 for the manifestations of the Spirit or you're eager for spiritual gifts. Strive to excel when you use those in building up the church. So the primary reason you've been given a gift, the primary reason is so that other people will grow. Of course you're gonna grow from it. But the primary reason you would go. So a healthy church knows that and says, well, since that's the case and since it's a gift, I want to use these gifts not just to grow myself spiritually, but I want to use it so that people in my church grow spiritually. It's a, minister, I mean, it's a grace that God gives us to include us in the ministry of other people in our church. It's a, it's a grace that God lets you minister to the people in, in, the, in our church body. So we have to think of it that way. So when we see the gifts being used in our church, whenever somebody has a spiritual gift and we see people using it, when we see people using it, we should look at that and say, man, that really, that enhances my adoration for Jesus. Whenever you use that gift to bless that person, it makes me, doesn't think you're awesome. I think you're awesome, but it really, it makes me think Jesus is awesome that he would give you that gift so that you could do that. It should enhance your love for Christ when you see it. Now, in verses eight through 10, uh, what Paul does basically is, um, he starts thinking about, wow, it's pretty awesome that Jesus gives gifts. L- let's just say it this way. If I was able to, I could, I could uh, put a gift in a present and wrap it up and put it under your Christmas tree, right? If I wanted to, I could say, I want to give you the gift of humility. <laughs> I can't do that, right? Or here, I want to give you the gift of administration, or if some of you wanted to, I wish I could wrap up like hospitality, right? And give you the gift of hospitality. I can't do that, right? No one can do that. But Jesus can literally give those kinds of gifts. So Paul's thinking about this. He's not, he's not giving somebody a gift of like a steak or a gift card to Walmart or whatever. Like they're getting the gift, a spiritual gift of being able to do things that, that no one else can give. So he starts thinking about, man, no one can give that. Like no one can give somebody the gift of administration or the gift of teaching except for Jesus, Wow, Jesus gives extraordinary gifts, unlike nobody else. How does he do that? Oh, it's because he's God. It's because he obeyed God. He, he was in heaven, living in heaven, and receiving all kinds of adoration. And what did he do? He left heaven and descended into the lower parts of the earth. And not only did he do that, but he obeyed the will of the Father to defeat Satan's sin and death on the cross. And if he descended, then it must mean that he also ascended. When he ascended, he went all the way back up into heaven and he 
uh, is on this victorious march towards bringing victory to everyone. So he starts thinking about all those things. And so that's really what 8 through 10 is, is he starts thinking about the fact that no one else can give these gifts but Jesus. And then he explains how Jesus earned the right and the power to be able to give those extraordinary gifts to us. That's what 8 through 10 is. And he says, therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. He's quoting Psalm 68. And as he's quoting Psalm 68, this is a victory hymn, highlighting the victory that Christ had when he secured uh, victory for us, defeat and Satan, sin and death. And then he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended? So Jesus descended to the earth. He lived here. He, he obeyed God all the way to the cross. And when it says, and he who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So he's just thinking on this amazing power that Christ had in obeying God dying for us on the cross, giving us forgiveness, but also securing for him victory to even be able to give us gifts. So as we think about that then, what are your spiritual gifts? What are your spiritual gifts? Think about it. If you don't know, go to Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, even Ephesians 4. Think about the gifts lifted in the church and identify those. And then ask yourself, am I using those for the body? Am I edifying this church body with those gifts? Am I doing it in such a way that I am trying to enhance our health as a church because I'm using them. If you don't know what your gifts are, just ask the person you came with. Ask the person that's a believer. Say, what are my spiritual gifts? Let's look at Romans 12. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, at those two gifts. And let's, let's study together and help me see my spiritual gifts. Help me know what they are so that I can, I can exercise those uh, for the health of this church. That's the fourth one. Fifth one we can see is this. Now, I'm gonna read it. Uh, And I have a little bit of explanation. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. So there's there's two categories that he's making as he's writing verses 11, 12. He's almost kind of uh, bifurcating the, 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 the congregation into two categories. You have one category of leadership and you have the other category of the rest of the people, the saints. Now, it's, it's not an absolute true bifurcation. I'll explain why, but he does in a sense. You can see it in verse 11 and 12. You can see where he creates leaders. He, he says in verse 11, and he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers. Those are the people that are the leaders. And then he also says in verse 12, to equip the saints. So you have the people that are the, the, the congregation of the church. Now, let's look at both of those. Verse 11, he gave apostles. That's the 12 that's the, that's the 12 disciples, including Paul. We all come from apostolic succession. There are no more capital A apostles anymore. Somebody can call themselves apostle. They're just not using the Bible right. It's, it's, it's those guys. We're all in apostolic succession, right? You have apostles. You also have prophets. We know those in the Old Testament. And even some people who are prophetic in the New Testament. Um, but you also have evangelists. These are the people that are, that are able to share the gospel with people in such a way where you're just like... You said the exact same thing I said. And when I said it, they're like, oh, yeah, okay. But when you said it, 4,000 people got saved. <laughs> how does that work? I don't understand how that works. And you're like, why can't I do that? And they just can't. You just can't. There's just people that have it and some people that don't. Um, it doesn't mean that we're not all supposed to still evangelize. We're just supposed to get mad at the people that do that and be like, Ugh. but anyway. So, like, uh, you've, got, you've got these people, right? You also have this. Notice this. You've got pastors and teachers. Now, this is, this is key. Not all teachers are pastors, but certainly all pastors are teachers. 
We can see that from 1 Timothy 3. But he's saying you've got these different people. You have pastors who shepherd the body, who lead the body, who, who think about the, the church and try to um, continually help them in ministry and also teach the scriptures. And you also have teachers. So not every teacher is a pastor, but certainly every pastor is a teacher. And I think even under that, if this is just a side note, when you look at that word teacher, that would include women there. That's where, that's where women would come in and teach. So anyway, the whole point is certainly he's, he's putting a category of leaders. He's putting a category of, of church leadership when you look at that. And he says that you have leaders and you also have the saints in, in verse 12 to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So let's, let's look at both of those. First, you have the leaders. The primary job of the leaders, the primary job of the leaders is to equip the saints. The primary job of, not, of the leaders is not to do the ministry. The primary job of the, saint, of, the, of the leaders is to equip the saints. Now, the Bible doesn't necessarily give us specifics on what equipping looks like. It just states generically that it should happen. It says equipping should happen, but it does say what the equipping should do. The equipping should cause, whenever they equip them, it should cause them to do ministry. So that means if, we're gonna, if the leadership of the church is going to equip the saints to do ministry, ministry is where they would be able to believe the gospel, articulate the gospel, share the gospel, come alongside those who are poor, orphans, widows, etc., meet their physical needs, and as you meet their physical needs, share the gospel with them. That's ministry. That's church ministry. So the leadership's primary job is to equip the body for the work of ministry. That's the leader's. Now, the second part is the saints. And here's where I said it's not necessarily a true bifurcation. It's because every single leader is also a saint. So they're also, they may be leaders, and their job primarily is to equip the saints for work of ministry, but they're also over here as a saint. So I'm like, hey, FUD, equip FUD to do the work of ministry as well. So every leader is also a saint who has to do ministry. So it's not a true bifurcation as where we just... The leaders just dump it off at you and you go get them. We also have Jesus as our chief shepherd and we do ministry with the saints. The leaders do. So um, both leaders and congregation share in the work of ministry. Share in the work of ministry. Which means uh, at, at Remedy, we want to have an every member ministry mentality. So in, in, in seminary or even in college, I can remember they always give you the 20-80 rule. Maybe you've heard this. It's that 20% of the people do 80% of the work. 20% of the people do 80% of the giving, etc. I don't want that junk here at Remedy, right? We're 100-100. 100% of the people do 100% of the work. That's the way it should be. It shouldn't be the opposite where 80% of the people only do 20%. I've heard pastors tell me they do this. And they say, you know, I just don't think that's like, that's how it is at Remedy. I just don't think it's like that. Um, I hear, and even this week, I, I was on the phone uh, talking with someone where a group had come alongside somebody in the group and ministered to them and cared for them. I only heard about it afterwards on the phone. Like, wow, that's awesome. Y'all did that? That's really awesome. Where the church takes seriously the idea that they're supposed to do ministry, comes alongside the people in the church and even outside the church and does ministry for them. And it's just, remedy. so I say, when we look at this, that you can go ahead and put it. Oh, it's already up there. Cool. A healthy church willingly shares in all the various ministries' responsibilities. I see Remedy doing this. I see, certainly we can grow in it, right? But I see, willing, I see Remedy doing this. It's easy in a lot of respects to be a pastor elder at Remedy because you see and understand this, that you're called to do the ministry. I'm with you, right? I'm a, I'm a saint too. I'm just like you. 
There's no difference. But you don't grow, like when I grew up in this kind of church mentality, old school church where, you know, uh, I'm the consumer and you're the pastor, you do the ministry and I, I chill and I watch you do the ministry. Like that's not the case here at Remedy. And it's, it's a blessing to get to be a leader here where we see just how serious Remedy Church is about being 100-100, that you're all in. That we're, we don't want to be 28. We don't want to be like that. So it, it's really cool to see just how you are uh, bought into the truth that every saint is supposed to be doing the work of ministry. Now, I want to read one little quote from Paul Tripp. Uh, for those that, that don't see or perhaps right now are realizing that they're not a part of the mentality of every member is in ministry mentality, 100-100 all in, uh, Paul Tripp uh, writes this. Now, when, if you ever read Tripp, he, he, he can be like, man, Tripp. Uh, so he does that in this. Uh, he's speaking to those, those people that need to be eager servants and not, not immature consumers of the church. This is what he writes. Your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse, and non-delinquent kids. <laughs> your, your job is much bigger than that. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are a part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. So that's what he's inviting us to, and that's what we're all a part of. So healthy church members and a healthy church realizes that we all willingly share in the various responsibilities. We want to all do the work of the ministry. We want to all do the work of the ministry. So let's spend our lives advancing Jesus' kingdom and doing the ministry. I would say this. I don't think this is controversial. But I would say that the work of ministry is probably the greatest thing that you can do with your life. The work, of, and the work of ministry is so broad, I think I can get away with it. No one's going to think I'm a heretic there. But I think it is the greatest thing that we can do with our life is the work of ministry. And every single church member is not only like, hey, come do this. But here, commanded into that. Let's do that. But we want to. We want to do it. So a healthy church member has church members that willingly share in all the various ministry responsibilities. Lastly, we can see in verse 13 through 16 is this. A healthy church member is marked by spiritual maturity and sanctification. Same kind of idea. Um, but healthy church members are marked by people that take seriously spiritual maturity. Take seriously sanctification. And in verses 13 through 16, he gives four little examples of what that looks like. So I'll read. Until we all maintain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Let's stop there. The knowledge of of the Son of God, until we all attain, he's already said this before, attain the unity of the faith, but we also attain, there it is, the knowledge of the Son of God. So the first, and this is just first level, uh, we would never say that maturity equals uh, being rich in doctrine and smart and knowing good theology, but we would say, if you're going to be mature, maturity means that you have knowledge of Christ. So a healthy church member should have an in-depth uh, knowledge of who Jesus is. That's how he says it here, that you would attain the knowledge of the Son of God. So spiritual maturity is shown by having good theology. Now, good theology doesn't necessarily equal spiritual maturity. There's lots of people that know lots of stuff about the Bible that are, that are not spiritually mature at all, right? But certainly, 
One avenue of spiritual maturity is good theology. And we are supposed to attain to the knowledge of the Son of God. When we do that, that means we won't say things and we don't believe things like all religions are the same. Or you just need to be good to get to heaven. Or Jesus wasn't really bodily resurrected. Or there was no virgin birth. Just to name a few. We wouldn't say things like that because good theology, as we grow in our maturity, we have good theology. That's one avenue. So study, study, study. It's important. It's a sign of spiritual maturity. It's a sign of sanctification that you know doctrine. But it's not only that, right? It's much more. You can also see that being spiritually mature means that you're actually growing in likeness. Look how he says it here. Uh, l- let me just say this. Uh, for those that don't grow in doctrine, verse 14 explains what happens to you. Verse 14. If you don't grow in doctrine then you're going to be tossed to and fro by the waves, carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful, scream, deceitful schemes. Just picture me and my little bass boat uh, trying to go from, I don't know, Florida to England, right? And I'm, I'm just cruising along in the Atlantic in my little bass boat, and all of a sudden, a huge storm comes up, and this boat is not going to be equipped by any means to withstand this, this, this storm. I'm going to be tossed to and fro all over the place. With bad doctrine, you're like my little bass boat in the Atlantic trying to make it to England. You're done. You're done. You need to have a good foundation of doctrine or you're just going to be thrown around by, by, it says, by deceitful schemes. Oh, that sounds right. No, it doesn't sound right. That's not right. So good doctrine shows uh, spiritual maturity. It's not, certainly not the only thing. Here's the next one. Good doctrine also sh- means that we are pursuing growth. Look what it says in verse 13, that we attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, here it is, to mature manhood, to the measure, so we can see that it's talking about growth, of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we see, uh, in verse 14, by the way, it says, so that we're no longer children. So he's automatically, as he's talking about growth, saying there's children and there's mature manhood. And you are to grow into the measure of the full stature of Christ. You are to grow into Christ's likeness. Which means mature Christians want to grow into their Christ likeness. You do not achieve Christ likeness at justification. You are declared holy, blameless, all those, all those things, righteous at justification. But then you start progressive sanctification and you grow into that. And it takes a long time by the Spirit's help. No doubt, Philippians 2, 11 and 12 that we and God grow into that, but certainly it's the Lord's help, but we, we need to do it. So there is a sense in which we say maturity is also growing in holiness. We have to grow in holiness. We have to grow, as it says, into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So this means when we read verses like Colossians 3, 5, Romans eight thirteen, put to death the things that are sinful within us, we take that seriously. We think, oh, that's, that's important. I need to definitely kill sin in my life. John Owen, most probably most uh, quoted everything about killing sin. He says, you must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Always be killing sin or it will be killing you. So we, we realize we must grow in holiness. So maturity is knowledge. Maturity is holiness. Maturity is also being loving. Growing into spiritual uh, maturity, growing into sanctification means that we're loving. Verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into every way into him who is the head. So growing up means that we speak the truth in love. Think of this in kind of three ways. First, that we speak, that we actually care enough to speak or that we just don't do the, the quiet treatment. <laughs> like that, that Jesus calls us to be mature and speak. But when we speak, we speak truth. We don't speak half-truths. We don't speak part-truths. We don't over-exaggerate. We speak truth. But there's a way to speak, tr- to always make sure you speak and speak truth and it just not be very nice, right? I'm good at that. We don't just speak the truth, but we speak the truth in love. So 
spiritual maturity, sanctification says that whenever we talk to each other, we speak the truth in love. We, the way I think about it, the easiest way for me is, if Jesus Christ were going to tell me this particular thing right now, how would he say it? How would he say it? He would be truthful, no doubt. But he would also say it in a way that after he told me that, and it was probably bad news, I'd be like, wow, that was awesome. Thanks for telling me that. Thank you for doing that. That's the way that we want it. Maturity is shown by this. So maturity is being loving in the way that we speak. Um, as a matter of fact here, as you look at verse 15, it says, we have rather speaking the truth in love. This literally is actually rather truthing in love. Truthing in love. Sadly, there's no English word truthing. We can make it up now. We can say it's ours. We say it is ours but uh this is this is common so you see uh you see nouns getting the participle ever more like adulting uh this that's not real you can't do that the verbs are supposed to have ing's but here paul under the inspiration of the holy spirit so we know that it's from god he's allowed to do it he takes that and he says you are truthing and love truthing and love so that's that's remedy's new thing now we are truthing in love all the time. We want to make sure that we are being mature so that we truth and love all the time. Whenever we speak the truth to each other, it's going to be loving in the most loving possible way. So spiritual maturity is knowledge. Spiritual maturity is holiness. Spiritual maturity is truthing in love. And lastly, spiritual maturity is contributing. Whenever you're not contributing, you're showing immaturity. Whenever you are contributing, you're showing maturity. That's what the point of verse 16 is. See, we see, from the whole body joined together and held together with every joint with which it is equipped. Watch this. When each part is working properly, that's you, the nose, the eye, the, the finger, the, the kneecap, whatever you are. You're, you're one of those, right? Hopefully it's not the kneecap. That's weird. But you're one of them, right? You're, you're one of these things. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So non-contribution in the church does not bring about growth. Now certainly, we're, we're connected to the head and it's Christ that gives the growth. But not only, Paul's clear here, not only is Christ giving the growth, but contributing members as each part does its work makes the body grow. So if you don't want to contribute, you're just immature. So we want to be spiritually mature. Maturity is contributing. contributing. We want to be the kind of people that say, the growth of the body is so important. So back to the very first thing. When we pursue these things, we pursue these things as individuals, but we know that as we pursue these things as individuals, we're also always pursuing these things collectively, corporately. And so we want to grow in Christ. We want to be more loving. We want a truth and love. We want to do all these things. But as we do it, we want to make sure that we're thinking of the rest of the church and, and uh, challenging them, asking them, pushing them, and having them do the same for us, that we're collectively growing. We're all contributing. So contributing is a sign of maturity. Um, those are the four things that we can see. There's certainly more we could say on spiritual maturity and what sanctification looks like. But those are the ones he says. So which one is it that you definitely need to grow in? More knowledge, pursue holiness, speak the truth and love more often, or perhaps it's just being a part, doing your part, being a, a contributing member. Now we've looked at this Signs of a healthy church, and there's six of them. And I just want you to do this with me. I want you to think about all six of them. I want you to, uh, as we're, I'm going to go through them again, and I want you to think, as you've heard them all now, I want you to think about which one, maybe two, don't overwhelm yourself. Well, I stink at all six. I'm writing them all down. <laughs> well, that's fine, but take one at a time, like one every month or something. Like, think about these and start thinking about which one of these do I need to grow in? 
Which one of these can I individualistically grow in and then corporately make sure that I'm being a part of the body? Do, we need to, do you need to love more consistently? Do you fail at, at loving consistently? Do you fail at maintaining the spirit-wrought unity? Do you, do you seek to have uh, division more than unity? Do you seek um, your own preferences instead? Do you fail to maintain the spirit-wrought unity? Do you fail to communicate the gospel often and clearly? Which one of those do you need to grow in? Do you fail to exercise your spiritual gifts for the church's edification, not just your own, for the church's edification? Do you fail to share in various ministry responsibilities? The, the leaders equip the church to do ministry. Are you part of the ministry? Do you do things in ministry? Lastly, are you... If you look at your life, is it marked by spiritual maturity or spiritual immaturity? Which one of these do you need to grow in? Write, write it down. Write one of those down and realize that Christ Jesus has given his life for you to make you have absolute and give you absolute victory over that. He has given his life. You are completely forgiven of that inability. And not only that, he has declared you righteous and he's set you on a path and given you the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness in your life, to pursue this happening. So let's, let's pursue these things as a church and be um, an every member participating in ministry church, a hundred hundred church, truthing each other in love and growing in our love and admiration for Christ while we are humble and gentle and patient and bear with one another. Uh, let me pray for us and then we'll go into a time of the Lord's Supper. Jesus, I thank you for these friends here and I pray that as they wrote down the things that they were thinking on, that they would consider them, that they would want to pursue those things in their life. God, that they would uh, take it seriously. They would find someone that they came with and share those things and be able to have prayer. They would come to me or Joe or Jack and say, this this is what I I realized that I need to grow in. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? Um, That they would let those around them that care for them and love them Help them grow. And I pray, Lord, that as we looked at this, that it would affect our church, that we would be more and more healthy, that you would help us become a, an amazingly healthy church that adores Jesus for what he's done. We thank you, God, for all this. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.